Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hello, hello! Welcome back to another episode of The Delicious Legacy. We are here for another archaeogastronomical adventure with me, Thomas Dinas. Now, this episode is a little bit of a cheat. Um, this is an old, old episode, one of the first ones that I recorded. And this one is um, The History of Cheese with uh, Ned Palmer. The reason I'm republishing it now is because I, well, I'm in a position to have uh, the files sounding better and edited down a lot more, so it's more concise and only concentrates on the juiciest parts of uh, the history of cheese that spans 10,000 years, more or less. When Ned came around um, about three years ago now to talk about... uh, the history of cheese. We had a massive conversation. Him and I stayed chatting uh, for about three hours. So yeah, I'm in the task of uh, editing down the bits that are more interesting about the history of cheese and uh, his own personal history. It took me a while to do. And so this episode here is a distillation of all the interesting things that we've said over those three hours and just about history of cheese from prehistoric Mesopotamia, Europe, and uh, of course, through the course of uh, the history of the British Isles as well, and whatever historical records we have from the Roman Empire, from Italy, across through France and uh, Britain, of course. So I hope this makes for a better, more enjoyable episode. But before we start the episode, a little message from my friend, Dr. Neil Battery and his podcast, The British Food History. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr. Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of The Delicious Legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers! Remember, if you like to get the episodes uh, early and ad-free, to join me on Patreon, where from £3 per month, you can enjoy all the audio content I produce for the podcast, plus 
extra articles and recipes and any general musings about ancient food the world over. You will find me on Patreon as the Delicious Legacy Podcast. And of course, I'm going to upload some uh, extra video material for you. Right. And let's start with uh, my conversation with Ned Palmer. Wow, how fantastic. Um, I say that because I just know so little about Greece. And I want to drink more Greek wine. And I want to know more about Greek cheese. So we used to get, when I worked for Niels Dairy, we got the feta in the bowl. A full size nice. like that. Yeah, probably. And it was always like, it's your fucking turn to open the bowl. No, I did it! Because it's in the cold room, it's freezing. Yeah. And you smash open the bowl with a hammer and chisel. And then it, all it gets on your hands and you discover how many tiny cuts you've got on your hands. Oh, no! It's freezing brine. It's another world, that cheese, though, isn't it? Yeah. Ned Palmer is an excellent and knowledgeable cheesemonger, author, and uh, passionate about cheese and history. And um, I invited him in my kitchen to have a discussion about the history of cheese while we're eating a variety of different cheeses which uh, would have been made throughout the course of human history. So he came in and we sat down and we discussed and we drank wine and we ate lots of cheese so in between our discussion about the history of cheese, you'll hear us eating also and trying some different cheeses from across Europe, I'll say, and Middle East. And of course, in ways that cheese was made throughout um, different uh, centuries and even millennia. So yeah, welcome uh, to our podcast, The Delicious Legacy. Thanks, Tom. And yeah, today we have with us Ned Palmer the author of um, Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles. And we're going to talk about ancient cheese. <laughs> and we mean, you know, cheese of antiquity, not some really old bit of cheese. Like, we're not going to talk about, you know, a 50-year-old bit of cheddar that someone left down the back of a sofa. No. Okay. <laughs> just, yeah. just set it in the record Really, straight. yeah, we'll try and uh, find the origins of cheese as much as we can. Yeah, so f- first um, I want to ask you a little bit about um, yourself. So how did you fell into the vat of curds? <laughs> <laughs> There's like obelix, isn't it? You know, falling into yeah, the magic yeah. potion. That is what I did fall into a magic potion because my life since cheese has been magic. And, but the way that it started was literally that I ate a piece of cheese. It was Borough Market, it was winter 2000. I was back from Australia and learning that you can't make any money out of theatre. And my mate Todd said, come and sell my cheese at Borough Market. And he makes uh, a traditional kefili. It's a Welsh-style cheese. And he used to make it in his little village, Llandaby Brevi, mm-hmm. in West Wales. Yeah. That's where he made it when I tried it. So I went down there. I'd never done anything like this before, retail, food, anything. And I tried some cheese and I felt angry because I realised that all the cheese I'd ever had in my life was rubbish. Yeah. I was quite cross. And also I was obsessed because it was so fascinating. This flavour was so fascinating. It was so complex. How does this product, something simple made from milk, mm. have that depth and complexity? He would bring the cheese down from the farm every week. Yeah. And each batch would look different and taste a bit different. But it's the same recipe. And it was like magic. And I was asking, you know, asking him lots of questions. And eventually he said, I'll get you a job at Neil's Yard Dairy if you stop bothering me. So I went there. And I was really lucky because they still stored all the soft cheese in the cellar in Covent Garden. And I worked with an amazing guy called Bill Oglethorpe. He's super wise. He's a Zambian cheese maker now. So he makes cheese in a railway arch in Bermondsey. 
Swiss cheese in a railway arch in Bermondsey. He's a magic guy. <laughs> so he taught me how to look after cheese. Yeah. Because we got them young and we grew the rinds like we can see on the goat's cheese. We grew them on there and looked after them. And it was, you know, it's like a calling. And I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. And the first day that I was I went to the cellar, I just it, I looked at the rotor and it said cheese. And I'm, I'm a bit of a dick. So I went to the boss and said, you know, this is a cheese shop, right? And she went, go down to the cellar. <laughs> I went down and there's Bill and there's these things. And, you know, you have to turn them and pack them and rub them. Yeah. And you don't get a formal training. It's not like there's a book of, it's called affinage. Mm. The person who does it is called an affineur. And there's no book. So Bill would teach you, but he's quite, what's the word, gnomic. He's like the Delphic Oracle. Yeah. You know, he doesn't say much. And then he's quite elusive. He's very like a jazz musician in a way yeah so a lot of the time i learned by touching the cheese thinking this is quite wet so i'll move it away from the humidifier to Mm. dry it a bit or it's this is really it's getting really soft it's too hot i'll I'll cool it down and we had no temperature control Mm -hmm. so to make it hotter you put it higher up in the attic and to make it lower you put it lower down and just to make the connection to ancient cheese making in columella i think it is it's basically an agricultural treatise he talks about affinage and he says in the first stage, the cheeses must be put on a rack in the wind and separate enough from each other so that they don't huddle together and get too moist. And that's exactly what we did. And when I read it, it was like the hair stood up on my neck because there's a 2000 year old instruction for affinage, which I wish I'd, you know, someone had told me about. Yeah. But there's the guy doing exactly what I learned to do. So it's just, when you're doing it, it's magical. You know that you're connected with the past. That, Brilliant. Yeah. That's that's kind of uh, one thing that was in my mind forever. Mm. You know, how much you can say that things are connected Yeah. with all the cheese history. Yeah. And well, should we try some cheese? So this is a simple, fresh goat's cheese called Paroche. Yeah. And it's made in Herefordshire by all a guy right. called Charlie Westhead, who's a lovely man. Mm-hmm. And... The tech, this, this for me is the Ur cheese. It's the first cheese that appeared, the first evidence we find is in the Fertile Crescent in northern Turkey, what's now northern Turkey, yeah. in around 7,000 BC. And the only evidence is traces of milk fat on shards of pottery. That's all we've got. And some broken up bits of strainer. So they were draining curd. Mm. So I think with the simplest technology and just taking milk and letting it sour, which it would in the warm... Yeah temperature with the culture that was living in the in the bowls and in the milk even possibly some rennet if you made it in mm. a very traditional way with a goat's stomach i think you'd make this goats are the first dairying animals to be domesticated i believe so i think our first cheese was a goat's cheese and i think it's a simple fresh cheese and Great. if the cheese maker from 7000 bc came over to, to Herefordshire and visited Charlie in his dairy. I think they would see what they what he was doing and recognise it. So even though the, now the equipment's made of stainless steel and plastic, it's the same stuff and the same process. Yeah. So I think it's an absolute continuity. Wow. And it's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just beautiful. Yeah. It's it's very fresh, obviously, as you said. But yeah. you can feel, you can taste almost the aromas of the grass and the flowers. So true. Yeah. And the herbs, and the yeah. cheese itself. Yeah, that is a lovely, the sense of terroir that the, um, the, mm. the, the flavour comes from the land, which again, a word we have to borrow from the French, great word. And the flavour of the grass and the herbs from that place may come through in the milk. This is such a simple fresh cheese that there's only the merest hint of that. I love the texture.
texture to it. Yeah. And this is skillful cheese making. You have to be so gentle right. with the curd and so patient with the curd to have this beautiful soft texture. Mm. If you're stirring it really fast, you would hurry or heated it too fast, you would lose a lot of that yeah. beautiful texture. It's like a mousse. I actually often pair very fresh acidic goat's cheese like this with a red. It's one of the few mm. cheeses I do pair with a red. Great. Because I think they contrast each other and the cheese brings out the fruits. I do tend to think that. I, in fact, <laughs> I know this is divisive, but I really think that beer is the most versatile partner for cheese and has so many flavours that are present in beer and present in cheese that you don't find in wine. Mm. Some of the caramelised, nutty yes. flavours you get from the malts, I guess, yeah. and some of the fruity, odd esters from the yeasts, and then a lot of the aromatics in the hops. And I think there's such a range of flavour and texture in beer that I feel that it should be... It's kind of got this low-rent image to it, although that's changed hugely since the craft beer thing. Yeah, it does change, but, um, but yeah, I think people it's... Don't, people think fine wines, mm. you know, and, or even, you know, pretty good wines, and then the beers would be more kind of down market. Yeah. I don't know about in Greece, but in England, I think there is a very strong perception that you have red wine and cheese. Mm, yeah. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I do have two theories. And But the main thing, I think, is if there are... I think there are now 2,000 distinct varieties of cheese in the world. So that's 2,000 sets of flavours and textures, a unique yeah. match, all of those. They cannot all go with one kind of wine. It's mad. True. And also, I think the tannin in some of the bigger reds is a, has a very strange effect on soft, creamy textures mm. like um, some of the softer cheeses we've got. So I don't know where it comes from. I think one thing is... In the Middle Ages, just to stick with the whole history, yeah. we drank an awful lot of claret from Bordeaux so much. I think we might have managed to kind of drink more per head of, of volume of wine than we do now. I may, might be exaggerating. It was a lot. And I just think if you said to a, times. an English <laughs> I know, right? It was, it, I don't know how good it was because they couldn't age it. Yeah. They didn't, couldn't age in the bottle. So it was, I think it was which pretty young, pretty sharp, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Nice for cheese, actually, I think. And so being, I think, being I think, that more yeah. delicate, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe that's younger. why. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's why. Mm. Also, I just think if you said to a medieval English person, you know, wine, they'd just think of claret. Mm. Then I think the other thing is if people start their meal with the white, they're going to move on to the heavier wines and the reds by the end of the yeah. evening. So that's when they have their cheese, is at the end. Yes. So is it that they've moved on to the red? Yeah. At that point. And I would just then open another bottle. I'd be fine. I'd just like open the white. That would be cool. So I want to ask you, obviously, from your research into cheese and all your experience, how did, um, what are the prevalent theories of how did we first make cheese? And yeah, so why humanity? <laughs> there's a, it's, it's a wonderful story for me. The discovery of cheesemaking is an image of human ingenuity, mm. also of human inquisitiveness and hunger, but of ingenuity. So in 7000 BC, all adult humans were lactose intolerant. They could not digest right. milk. Once you were weaned off the breast, you stopped, you began to lose the ability to digest milk. When you make milk into cheese, you make it digestible for lactose intolerant people. So you heard it here first. Every lactose intolerant person can eat cheese. Right. If cheese is making you sick, it isn't the lactose intolerant. It's something else. Right, okay. So this is a bit of a scoop. So there's something else there. Yeah, yeah. it could be an allergy to certain mm. proteins in the milk. It could be, I mean, modern milk from factory production is from really intensively bred freezing Holstein cows. Is right. Unnerves me. 
so I think you had these herders and they're raising goats. There was all this milk. They're hungry people. Peasants are hungry. And they wanted to eat it. And every time they eat it, ate it or drank the milk, it made them really sick. And um, somebody happened to notice that, well, they had some milk. They were really hungry. They'll try again. This milk had been sitting around and had soured. By souring, the lactose is converted to lactic acid. Mm. And then you can eat it if you're lactose intolerant. So what I love is that someone is brave and crazy enough. This is milk. I don't know, it's sitting in a dish for some reason. Maybe they were going to feed it to babies because they wouldn't. the adults wouldn't have eaten it. Yeah. Why, why would you do that? It makes it... So it's sitting around, it's gone clumpy and sour, you know, and they drink it, they try it, and they're like, I didn't get sick. And I think they went back and convinced all their relatives and friends, look, 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 I didn't get sick, look. And after a while, be like, oh, fine, okay, well, oh. So then they would have to figure out what happened to the milk. And people from the past aren't just more stupid versions of us, they're just scientists, they were scientists too. Yeah. So I have a rather grim theory about how the first cheese came about, which my editor wouldn't let me put in the book because it's a bit grim. So it involves dead goats. Right. And if you think that dead goats is going to put you off cheese, I won't tell you, but... Nothing put me off cheese. I think so too. So I'll just say, so my original cheese origin myth is that someone had a bowl of milk, it soured, they drank it, and they didn't get sick. But I'm sceptical about why are they keeping this bowl of milk? What's it doing Mm. sitting around? What do they do with it? If you open a baby goat's stomach once it's dead, obviously you'd wait till it died, otherwise that'd be horrible, you will find cheese in it. Because the way that ruminant animals um, get nourishment from milk is by making cheese in their stomach. The bacteria in the stomach and the acid sours and Mm -hmm. thickens the milk, and they have natural rennet in their stomach, which coagulates it. So inside that stomach, you find cheese. Now, peasants are hungry. They see this stuff, they're going to eat it. Maybe they made a sausage by rolling up the intestine or whatever, and they didn't get sick. So it had, it had the bacteria and the rennet all in there. Mm. So humans invented cheese before they were able to drink milk. I also think it's fantastic for a culture if you can harvest food in the summer and then preserve it and keep it to the winter. So all of the sausage and pickles and cheese is just a survival strategy. Yeah, yeah, and the tribes funny. who did it outperformed the tribes who didn't. And you look at cheese making, it spread beautifully as People moved out of the Fertile Crescent and one, in one direction they moved was north yeah. up into what was, was to become Europe. They brought cheese making with them. So then the text starts appearing in archaeological digs as they head up through Europe. So this U- profoundly European cultural practice of cheese making comes from the Middle East, which is fantastic. And I love it. I just, I love that. Also, it seems as if lactose tolerant. So humans developed the ability to drink milk in adulthood. It's called adult lactase persistence, if you really want to get into it. But lactose tolerance spread with cheese making. It right. spreads out, as you see the, the, the evidence of cheese making, in the bone record, you see humans mm. developing the, the enzyme to process milk. So it's as if a gene piggybacks on a human culture, which is mad. I mean, it's probably far less romantic. I'm not a geneticist, you know. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but no, just, it's, it's pretty cool. It's brilliant. Story. And so, being able to digest milk is another excellent adaptive trait for human cultures mm. because you get more nourishment. So then, the cultures that could digest milk outperformed the other cultures. Yeah. So, in a sense, from 7,000 BC, there's been cheese imperialism, which is the cheese imperialism of cheese making cultures spread out and taken over. Uh, taken over, which yes, is yes. Cool. <laughs> Eat your cheese if you want to conquer the world. To conquer the world, yeah. yeah. 
I, I was just going to suggest that we try the next cheese. Yeah. This, so this is beautiful mold ripened goat's cheese. Yeah. And I was told, yeah, we should do this, eat this fresh. It's, yeah. It's very fresh. Yeah. Excellent. So, so yeah, I'll leave it to you too. So it's grown this beautiful rind on it. And in a sense for me, this is what happened when cheese making came to Northern Europe. Mm. Even perhaps to Rome, and to the uh, you know the Roman area, because in the Middle East it's too hot to leave cheeses around long enough to grow this rind. They yeah. would sour, go crazy. They wouldn't taste good. So you either eat them fresh or you preserve them in brine like your feta, which is an ancient, ancient form of cheese. Absolutely convinced that the, even before Greece, um, the peoples of the Mediterranean basin were trading in feta. Right. It was a big, right. there's a major trade. So once it gets into the north in a cooler climate, you can grow a rind on it, a mold rind. So what I think happened is the peasant woman who was making her cheese, because it was all women, yeah. and they made these kind of small soft cheeses just like we're eating. She keeps them in her cellar or in a barn, and some of them stay there enough to develop a rind. Mm. She's a peasant, peasants are hungry, so she eats the cheese, goes, gee, that's nice. And I think then mold ripened cheese is born. I'm sure it's an accident like cheese making. And it's like the next, it's the progression, in a sense, from when they move out of that area of the Fertile Crescent and into Europe. And I would argue that England, Britain, was a great place to make these sorts of cheeses nice and moist and cool, you know. Yeah. So when did um, cheese making spread to Britain? Is it simultaneously with the rest of Europe, more or less? So 4000 BC is the first, is where you locate the first evidence for, for dairying. And I think by extension, cheese making in Britain. Mm. Oh, and again, yeah. it's shards of pottery with traces of milk fat. It was something that archaeologists only discovered in, I think, 2013. Yeah. How to tell what kind of fat it was. Before then, you just knew it was, it was fat. Being able to distinguish dairy fat from animal fat means you can then say this is direct evidence for dairying. In 4000 BC, people are still lactose intolerant, so it has to be cheese yogurt, fresh cheese, it has to be some process. Yeah. Yeah. So 4,000 BC. You can see these waves of farming culture coming up through Europe and then they stop at the channel and then after right. a while they come over. Oh, yeah. So one theory that I love is a wonderful archaeologist called Francis Pryor and he said, the land of Britain is so bountiful that the hunter-gatherers didn't need to develop the farming techniques yeah. that people over the, you know, 20 miles over the water were doing because they didn't need to. And hunter-gatherers have a lovely life. Farmers have to work much harder. Mm. They become shorter. They become less healthy. They well, die nourished. younger. Yeah, They're yeah, malnourished. Yeah. Sounds horrible farming. Yeah. So, yeah, I just imagine these Britons lying Gun around. Disease, yeah, you know, you're killing a boar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, and, but fine, I reckon it was beer and maybe cheese. So they go I over to it. see their French cousins. And they've got this beer and this nice fermenting. Mm, yeah. You know, you kind of got to settle to start making beer and, you know, grow, grow, yeah. grow grain. Exactly. And there's this cheese, it's good. Yeah. You know, more of a set. So then maybe it was that. Maybe it's beer and cheese that made us start. Yeah. There's evidence. The first evidence seems to centre a lot around Stonehenge. So the builders of Stonehenge were fueled by cheese, which is lovely. In Ireland, there's an amazing field system in Ireland called the Cader Fails field system. I probably pronounced it appallingly. It's from, I think, three and a half thousand BC, and it's colossal. It was the largest field system in existence at the time, I believe. And from some evidence of age of the bones, it was dairy farming. So that looks as if the Irish were doing large-scale proto-industrial dairy farming five and a half thousand years ago, which is so cool. As far as I see, from what I've seen of the evidence, what I read in my interpretation, it's that... Mm. 
For a long time, we thought the Romans introduced cheese making to Britain. And, and the Romans were really scathing about the British and said they don't even make cheese. The, the Irish eat their families, you know, really, you know, and they don't make cheese. And I think that they brought new techniques, but that we were already mm. doing something. So in a sense, yeah, I suppose, yeah, the very first cheese we tried was the fresh cheese of Neolithic yeah. people in the Fertile yeah. Crescent. And we have something pretty fresh again, but with, with a the bit mold of, rind, with a bit more age, yeah. Something that probably appeared in North Europe. More, Northern, know. maybe. I mean, maybe southern. You know, if it's it's cool enough in in, in the north of Italy and yeah, north yeah. of Spain to make these. I mean, they make cheeses like that in Spain now. I don't know if there's a tradition of making the style in Italy. Mm. Is uh, yeah. Suppose you have the mountains, so you yeah. have the Alps or the Pyrenees, and then you, you get a whole other family of cheese which we haven't exactly brought, but that we kind of have. I mean, mountain cheese making as a whole culture mm. that for me. It predates countries, you know. The people yeah. of the Alps didn't... They weren't French or Swiss or Italian then. Mm, yeah, I know. But they made cheeses that were the product of the kind of cheesemaking you had to do. You're making, mm. them, you're making them high up in a mountain pasture because the pastures in the Alps go up and yeah. you have to follow the snowmelt. You have to. Exactly. And normally you'd use a lot of salt, sorry, but you don't want to carry bags of salt at the mountain. So they made cheese at higher temperature to not have to use so much salt to suck out moisture. And they got particular flavours and bacteria uh, and textures to the cheese. And if you think of Fontina or Gruyere or Conte, they have similar textures and flavours because they're all that culture. You know, they had the same pressures on them. Yeah. And then I think it's Pliny, one of the Roman writers, talks about cheese in the markets of Rome from the Gaul Alps. Yes. And it sounds like a Beaufort to me. Right. They're yeah. big wheels. Also, they would have to be big and hard because you're not going to take tiny goat's cheeses on a cart from an Alp to Rome. You know, no. it's not going to work and it's pointless and they would, mm. they would be ruined. So they'd be big, hard cheeses. So I think arguably be, yeah. some of the Alpine cheeses are really ancient. No. Um... So I wonder, I mean, my other problem is when you start asking, was this cheese made then or was it like this then? Or, is we don't know what the cheeses were like, even if they had the same name. Mm. So people now, there's a bit of an argument at the moment about Stilton because you can't make it in Stilton according to the actual British trademark that was registered by the Stilton makers because they make it in three particular counties, mm. Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire and Derbyshire. Stilton happens to not be in any of those counties, which is a bit galling for the people. Stilton, they'd like to be able to make it. It would be nice. So they found some... A, a local historian's found some records that he thinks shows it was made there. And maybe it was. But when I read some of the recipes from back then, I wouldn't even recognise it as Stilton. They boiled it in whey. They'd make right. it rock hard. And Stilton, we know, is creamy. So, so this rock fall from Pliny, like how would we know that it was, you know, that it was functionally the, the, the same cheese? You know, if I could build a time machine, I'd go back and eat ancient cheeses. I'd so do that. I think that's... That'd be amazing. <laughs> that's the only reason to build a time machine, really. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So any, any other f funny myths about cheese? Well, here's the thing. It's sort of a myth. It's, it's in the world of myth. And it also allows us to try another cheese. Yes. So, Brilliant. did you know that Cyclops or Polyphemus, Polyphemus yeah. was a was a cheesemaker? Yeah, you I do know that, but obviously, yeah. Most well, of you're Greek, you know. Yeah. Most people don't know. And when you read the section in Homer, it's almost a recipe for cheesemaking because he talks about coagulating the milk. With fig sap, I think, which is a yes, traditional thing. very traditional, very brilliant. And really ancient thing yeah. to do. He talks, well, Homer talks about 
pressing the curd in baskets, like kind of wicker cheese moulds, mm. and about having the cheeses on racks, nice and spread apart, so they dry, just like Brini tells us, you know. It's so amazing. It's, I mean, you read it. I'd never realised this before I came across this passage in a cheese book. And basically, it looks and sounds to me, it's sheep's milk, like a kind of pecorino sardo. This is based on manchego, what we're about to eat, I'd say, but these hard... Mm-hmm. Sheep's milk cheeses are truly ancient. And so at first, when I started researching the book, I imagined a kind of 19th century style progression of, of sophistication, you know, from the first most primitive cheese, then it grows mold. Then you learn how to make hard cheese through technology, and then you make the wash wine and so on, as if there's this progression in human endeavour from the simple to the complicated. And this has been around... When is the Iliad? Is 3000 BC uh, it's, that it's written down? No, it's about 3000 years ago from, from today. From today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it was written. Yeah, written, yeah. But wasn't it also handed on before then, orally? So yeah. the belief is that it's the stories are much older. Much older. Yeah. So people have been, well, people have been making this for thousands of, yeah. of years. So I think that this is ancient. I also think that, well, I'm certain that the Romans brought a hard sheep's cheese to Britain. So they had, the army, in its ration, had one ounce of cheese a day for each man. It was hard sheep's milk cheese. Mm. That's 5,000 men in a full-strength legion, so that's 5,000 ounces of cheese a day that you have to have, you have to make. You could only make it from the spring to summer, so you've got to make. It has to be yeah. preserved, it has to be hard, so that it can fit in there. Yeah. You can cut it for the rations, and you need to make a lot. So you want to make standardised cheese. And you find in the archaeological record all over Britain, Roman cheese moulds of a standardised size and shape. I love this. There's one in the British Museum that's perfectly preserved. But there are one, I've seen them in little town museums, literally mm. all over the British Isles. Same size and shape. They are often associated with Roman army sites. Yeah. So they made cheese, I think. They brought a few people over and they taught the local people how to do it in the big Roman industrial dairies. So they brought a kind of proto-industrial cheese-making to Britain, I, I believe. There's this bit when the Romans go, we used to call it the Dark Ages. Yeah. And I called it the Dark Ages because there's no, no one wrote anything down for ages. And it's really hard to find anything about cheese-making from about 500 CE till about, well... 16th century when it really starts to get written down but a bit annoying there's little glimpses in the fog which are amazing so there's a there's a lovely welsh king called Hull the good and he was good because he had these very fair laws and a lot of his fair laws are about women's rights and women's right. rights in the divorce and they i think could divorce their men they didn't have to wait around they could initiate it and they got apart from other stuff all the cheese still in the brine bath so this is in the dairy in the brine bath, it's in the brine bath. So one thing we know is they were brining their cheese in Wales. So my mate Todd, who makes the cheese, that uh, makes the reason I'm a cheesemonger, brines his cheeses in a brine bath. You know, he's in Western Superman now, but when he was in Wales, he also says that when his retinue arrive at, at someone's you know stately home, they're going to provide him with certain things: these tubs of honey, some ale, and it's a list, and it says and ten cheeses. That means this cheese must be a standard size because he just says ten cheeses. Yeah. So he knows how much he's getting. So I, that standardisation, I reckon, came from the Romans. We're still doing it, you know. Yeah. And this was 900 CE or something. Do you want to try that feather cheese? I maybe? really do. I really do so much. I'm just going to spear this whole big yeah. bit, if that's okay. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever your needs, Malbin Greek has you covered. 
You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London, Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And then we'll try the rest of the feta with um, some amazing, insanely tasty olive oil that I have. Brilliant. And some oregano, which is kind of the, the traditional Greek way of is it feta. To oil and oregano. Olive oil and oregano. Yeah. But just first tell me what you think about this. Is it sheep and goat? Sheep and goat, yeah. yeah. So you can only make feta in certain places. So... It's obviously North Greece, yeah. prefectures of North Greece, Macedonia, Epirus, Thessalia, Steria Elada, Peloponnese down south, mm-hmm. in Crete, in Lesbos, the island of Lesbos. And I think I think that's a place you can name your, your cheese feta right. in a certain way. Other places make as well exactly the same cheese, but they cannot call it feta. Yeah. But yeah, it does taste different in term, because it's from different islands, yeah. different climates yeah. and different soils and so on. They have one in Peloponnese called Sfella, which is, it's called Feta of the Fire. <laughs> I love the name. Yeah. It's more intense, basically. It's a lot more intense. Uh, similar to Feta, it has a different method of making. But yeah, it's, it looks similar. And again, you eat it on the table or you can fry it and so on. But yeah, it does, does have an intensity that you don't have with Feta. Uh, and then you have one in a small island in the northeast of the Aegean Sea. Near the near Turkey, so the island they do it in little quicker baskets, mm. exactly the same 
feta style, but in wicker baskets. This sounds like um, the Iliad, the world, the, yeah. the Homer story. Yeah. Amazing. And I had one in October, and it was so delicious. It was harder than feta. Yeah. I had that tanginess and saltiness, and just transported back to, you know, 2,000 years ago or something. I thought yeah. that's how cheese was made. That was brilliant. And then there is, yeah, the places that they do cheese with all sorts of different ways, like there's one that they spread a bit of seawater. Really? What, on the cheese as it's maturing? As maturing, yeah. Does it turn out like a washed rind, like these pinky ones that we've got, or does it just stay more like white? Uh, I think it has a rind. It has a little rind, yeah. Yeah, so basically... Yeah, we left the Neolithic kind of era, went to the Roman era, and we kind have of a little bit post-Roman now, with sort of the Dark Ages the dark moving ages. out of that. It's yeah. a bit boring, not enough cheese writing. Yeah, <laughs> move swiftly through that. There was another thing I picked up that was lovely, and this is more, my expertise now is much more in Britain than it would be, yeah. you know, yeah. before when I was looking at early cheese making. Is that there's a, a record of the rents that the women cheesemongers of London have to pay to the local authority from maybe the, the 10th century. 10th century, okay. Yeah. That's, and they have that's to pay more at ago. Christmas. Sometimes they have to pay more at Christmas. So what it means to me is you sell more cheese at Christmas back then, just like you do now. now yes. You know, when I had my stall at Borough Market, the whole stall lived on Christmas and for the yeah, rest of the year, yeah. it was a howling desert of poverty. And then you just made all the money at Christmas. So stressful. Oh, uh, but they, so did they. Mm. And so that also uh, suggests to me that some of the cheeses this lady was selling on her stall were fancy, were more quality. That you So you bought your treats for Christmas, mm. the cheese. Yeah. Because I've always wondered... What kind of food is cheese? Is it a staple food for the peasant, like your thing that we have to try soon? Or is it a fancy food for the Lord? Mm. Or is it a ration for a soldier? Or is it a kind of fancy gourmet thing? And it's hard to tell, but and I think also both and all. I think I think so, yeah. I think it's uh, a bit of everything. Yeah, and possibly yeah. when you look at... I mean, if there's recipes with cheese in an Apicius, then the Romans must have also considered cheese to be a treat and a fancy mm food as much as a staple but they called it white meats in britain and they meant the crummy stuff that the peasants eat you know mm. the, so the thing, as we move more into where there was more stuff written down and i kind of couldn't know a bit more what i see is that the rich people got cream the rich people got the fat so if rich people got cheese it was a full fat cheese if you make cheese from well you can skim the cream off and you can have it as cream or you can turn it into butter Butter was always a high-value product yeah. that you sold to rich people. And then you can make cheese with the remaining milk, but usually it's going to be hard and less flavoursome. Mm-hmm. And so you give it to the poor or the soldiers, you know, or the workers, and the posh people get the nice stuff. So in the Middle Ages, Suffolk rose to power. Well, East Anglia rose to power as the absolute governor of cheesemaking in Britain and just wiped everyone else out. They were the pinnacle. And this came as a considerable surprise to me. Because when I was a younger monger in the early noughties or whenever, I didn't think you could make cheese in Suffolk. I'd never heard of Suffolk cheese. Right. Which I apologise to the cheese makers of Suffolk now. I hadn't really heard of it. And I kind of assumed the land wasn't right and didn't know right. any tradition of doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, but the thing was that it was great dairying land. They had their own breed of cow, a Suffolk dun. It was a brown cow, maybe like the red cows of Italy that mm. make great parmesan. And they got the contract to supply the English army in the fight 
against the French in the Hundred Years' War. So, well, they got a contract to supply the garrison in Calais, and this was big money, and they did really well. They went over to cow's milk because all, nearly all the cheese in Britain was sheep until around that time, which is something a lot of British people don't realise, that sheep's yeah. milk cheese is a traditional British cheese, and people are surprised. So, yeah, that, we're talking about um, the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War, 13-something or rather to 1453, 14th century, 14th, 15th century. So, so one, up to then we had sheep's, sheep's milk. milk. Yeah, and one reason for that, I believe, I think, I think it was popular anyway, sheep dairying was done, cows weren't really there for dairying, they were smaller. Is that sheep's milk? This is sheep's milk too, yeah. So this is right. Lord of the Hundreds, which is a suitably medieval name for... A cheese, which are like small administrative areas. Ah, I see, I see. Um, okay, I was so it, very it, intrigued by the name. It, it, it alludes to that kind of feudal farming of, of the medieval time. I think, I assume that's what they mean. You can see it's sheep because it's pale. Yeah. Softer yeah. than the Burt's well, less floral, more sheepy. So it's Burt's well sheep as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love the texture. Sheep's milk is, is quite high in fat, and so you get really creamy cheese. I think it's very easy to make rock-hard sheep's milk cheese. So, wait, wait, so yeah, so the Suffolk guys are making this cow's milk cheese, selling cheese to the army, and selling they're close to London. There's lots of great yeah. water transport to London, and London's where you needed to sell to if you wanted to make any money ever, you know, in Britain until the I don't know until the Industrial Revolution and the other towns started to spring up. You know? Yeah. So they they did very well, but they had a problem in the cheesemongers of London, or the London cheesemongers, who are sort of unofficial guild consortium of extremely powerful businessmen, had their own fleets of ships, their own networks of stores around the country, and they forced the Suffolk, the East Anglian cheesemongers, to skim the milk more and more and more, to get more and more butter, so mm. the London cheesemongers could make more and more money. And they would, for, they would say, for every pound of cheese, it's whatever, half a pound of butter. And they kept increasing. They said, now it's a pound for every pound of cheese. And they kept increasing the, the proportion to the point where the Suffolk cheese was skimmed so much that it was rock hard and tasteless. And it had a terrible reputation. It was called Suffolk Bang. There's a poem about it, which went, those that made me were uncivil. I am harder than the devil. It says, fire won't sweat me, a knife won't cut me. And people hated it. They gave it to the Navy. So the Navy in, the, in that period, you know, oh tough, tough men who ate salted beef that could be 100 years old in these casks, and yeah. the Navy refused to eat it. So this great power of cheesemaking in Britain <laughs> rose to this point and then was broken partly by that. Also, there was some flooding in Suffolk and there was cattle plague. But altogether, it just kind of destroyed the Suffolk cheesemakers. So the story of cheesemaking in Britain is the story of kind of rise to power and tragedy, like an ancient tragedy, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> They were brought low and they tried to stop it. The Suffolk cheesemakers went to Parliament yeah. to say, look, these London cheesemakers are forcing us to do this thing that's putting our cheese into ill repute. This was by the 17th century, so it went on for a while. Right, yeah. And yeah, no, the cheesemongers were too powerful. Just, just, just broke them. That I should say, and I always like to say this in public, it's very important, that my friend Jared has a shop called London Cheesemongers. It's in Kensington. It's an excellent cheese shop, and he's a very nice man, and he would never single-handedly destroy the cheese-making culture of an entire region of Britain, I promise you. It's not Jared. <laughs> he's not the same as them. But we should, we should go back, actually, and talk about the monks a bit. Yes. Because it allows us to try a couple of other cheeses. I was going to ask about the monks because... Hugely important. Surely we, we have records as well from... Some, yeah. Some really interesting records. So... I was in the rare books and manuscripts 
room of the British Library. It's quite a quiet place. And I opened this book and I yelled with joy. You know, <laughs> and you know, and the thing I'm excited about is I found monastic cheese making treatise. It was almost a sort of industrial system. It was big, mm. large scale. They really started nailing standardization. So they talk about three sizes of cheese. They talk about how much milk you can get out of a cow and how much of that's going to turn into cheese. They knew this from these treaties on on estate management that were Mm. written around the time. Part of this is to make sure your cheesemakers aren't ripping you off. So they would, to see if you you might be skimming off cream, pointing at you saying you're this criminal cheesemaker now. You might be skimming off cream or you might be stealing cheeses or something because you needed this for your family. And they knew. So there's a bit in the records where they're talking about two manors and they're both owned by one monastic house in Canterbury. So these are like two farms and they've each got a guy running them. And one of them's making way more cheese than the other one. And I always feel really sorry for this other guy because you know that he gets brought in by the abbot, you know. So, John, how come Joe down there is making more cheese? You stealing cheese? You should be making this much. So they knew. The other thing that isn't written, they don't describe what kind of cheeses is. You kind of guess from the tech. Right. And, and the sizes and things. They don't say things like, oh, the abbot presented me with a lovely Canterbury cheese today. Mm. It was hard and it tasted of flowers. And, mm. you know, and they're not like us talking about these yeah. flavours. Don't know if they even thought like that. I don't know. But you guess a bit from sizes and shapes. I think they were fairly hard cheeses because they're quite big. But I also think that they were making washed rind cheeses, which are... We tend to think of as French, Belgian, perhaps German. They are the soft, pink, sticky, very pungent cheeses that divide the world, mm, you know, mm. into, oh my God, that's amazing. And that's not a foodstuff. Why have you done that to me? The thing about these cheeses, so if they were made over on the continent, all these monastic houses were in communication with each other. And there's a constant flow yeah. of people. They're bringing texts to another monastery to be copied. They're, you know, visiting to check that everyone's adhering to the monastic yeah. rule. Yeah. You know, some guy goes over to France, he eats this cheese, he goes, this is amazing. And the brother John, show me how you do this. And brother shows him and he brings it back to his monastery in um, Gervaux in, in Wensdale and says, look, look, I've got this recipe, mate, this is banging, you know. So, so, so these cheeses are pungent, creamy, salty. They're quite luxuriant. I don't think the rank-and-file monks ate the stuff for this good. No, I think they I ate think the skimmed milk hard, you know, peasant cheese. I think the abbot might the eat cheese like this. Yeah. Remind me which one is this? It's called Durris. This cheese is from Ireland. It's from County Cork. County Cork is the centre of... It's where one of the... the a part of one of the places where the great cheese renaissance kind of kicked off in the late 70s when we started... People started making artisanal-style cheeses again uh-huh. in this country because by the 70s, it had almost disappeared, any tradition of artisanal cheesemaking. Yeah. <gasps> so the thing about these wash rind cheeses, what you do is you wash the young cheese in brine in salt water. Yeah. So you take your thing that looks like a parache with no rind and you wash it in salt water. It kills the mould spores that would grow on it and turn this into a form of brie or camembert. And it encourages a bacterial rind to grow on the cheese because mm. this bacteria loves wet and salt, wet mm. salty conditions. It's a bacteria that's around it, it's on our skin. So I think the first wash rinds happened by accident. I think there's a monastic cheese maker, or perhaps Afina, a person who's looking after the cheese. He maybe doesn't know he's doing that sweaty yet. Hands. Sweaty hands. He's maybe not making the cheese, he's storing it for his boss. He's not a full affineur yet, he just keeps it and tries to not let it go bad. Yeah. Some of the cheeses go pink. 
He's a monk. He's hungry. He's got a boring diet. He tries it. It smells a bit funny, but he tries it anyway. And it's amazing. And he thinks, how do you do that? So they figured out, experimented and figured out it's brine. And just... must have taken, could have taken 100 years or something. Uh, yeah. But humans are smart. But salt water, cork, is right on the west of the Atlantic coast. Veronica Steele was trying to make hard cheeses. And all her cheeses turned into washed wines because <laughs> the salty wet air. And she said this lovely thing, and eventually she gave in and started making a cheese called Melines, which is this super funky, much more intense than that. And she said, you have to make the cheese the land wants you to make, which is one of the most beautiful things anyone's ever said about a cheese. Yeah. This is just glorious. And, it's, and I, every cheesemaker would, would understand that in whatever culture or language. So this Doris, it really comes from the land, from the... You know, from the wet, salty place. And you, uh, this mm. earthy flavour, maybe, when you go there. Good grass, it's lush. And I think this is a monastic style. And I think that we probably did make these cheeses. Not yeah. in the monasteries themselves, because you don't have cows and that inside the monasteries. You have them on a farm. Yeah. The monks weren't really supposed to... They weren't supposed to leave the monastery at all. Yeah. So yeah, the so idea of the, the farmers... Mon- yeah, 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 farmers make... And they, they had cheesemakers making cheese, I'm sure of this. The monks didn't have their arms in vats of milk making cheese because they weren't doing that. But then the cheese was brought in. I think what the monks did do, though, is become affineurs. Oh, yeah. Because they were looking after the food. Yeah, yeah. So I think we can thank the monks for affinage in a way, maybe. Peasant women are too busy to mess around washing cheeses. Yeah, yeah. But then as soon as Henry VIII destroyed the monasteries, then we lost a whole family of cheeses. And they lost so much. And, you know, there's another thing we can thank Henry VIII for is maybe there were more monastic texts on cheese making maybe there maybe maybe there was some monk who wrote a letter to his brother monk saying listen i just had this amazing cheese and it tasted yeah. like flowers and you know maybe yeah, it's there yeah. maybe you know how so many of those ancient manuscripts got used to bind books and things maybe yeah. one day we'll open an old book and find a monastic treatise that'd be nice i'd be really pleased if that happened so we try the other uh, mm. Walsrin, which yeah. is the Isle of Avalon. I'm not sure. So is it by the same people who make um, Lord of the Hundreds? I can't remember. I think... I think it might be. I mean, for one thing, it's got kind of romantic British name. Yeah. You, know what, you know what the Isle of Avalon was? Is that something to do with um, King Arthur? Very good. Yeah. It's, where, it's where he, you know, when he fell into his long sleep, he's taken off in a boat to the Isle of Avalon and he'll come back. Yes. You know, when everything goes wrong. So you should be back quite soon, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, in the 19th century, fa- fancy cheese meant foreign cheese. So it's great because we've got, you know, I've, I've got plenty of job left, which is going around telling people how amazing British yeah. and Irish cheese is. Yeah. And also that we have this tradition for thousands of years. And that yes. we, in the, 18th, in the 17th century, there was a boom in Cheshire making. It became the cheese. It took over after the Suffolk cheesemakers were wiped out yeah london cheesemongers looking for a new cheese found the cheshire started selling in incredible amounts and it, yeah. it, exporting hundreds or thousands of tons to france and um, such big business it all went out of the port of chester and in france they have a cheese called chester which french people sometimes think is a british cheese it's never existed we've never called it chester and it's a vestige of that historical thing that they used to get their cheese from chester the other thing that happened then was there was the trade was going down from Chester to London and then back up with goods, you know, they would sell the cheese by yeah. goods, bring it up. It changed the economy of, of the Northwest and because it brought all this money, it brought mm. these goods in. But it also created a new class of criminal that I just love, which is French cheese pirates. 
French cheese Yeah, parts. when we went to war with the <laughs> they French. They had to be French. I spent, well, they, the reason they were French cheese pirates, I'm sure there's been British... Actually, I know there's been a British cheese pirate, but that was back in the medieval period, and he was pirating French ships and stealing their cheese. We need to hear about the story, but tell me but about yeah, the French. Well, the French cheese pirates, because we went to war with the French, which was basically the national pastime for the yes, British, was going yeah, to war yeah. with the French until about 1914 or something, when we found someone else to go to war with. The 1670s, I think. And so they were like privateers. You know, This is the other funny thing. Because they're French, they're privates. The British ones are called privateers because they get some letters from the king saying, yeah, you can go and nick French stuff. Yeah. And then they go out and nick it, but they're privateers. So they were probably... pirates. Yeah, pirates. <laughs> they were probably English cheese pirateers too, yeah. But I, I just, I love that. I found out so much wonderful stuff while I was doing the research. But, and, and mostly that we do make wonderful cheese. We always did. Yeah, cheese is magic. Well, now that was a surprise for me as well. Apparently there is um, a dead goat cheese. So if you're feeling squirmish and uh, you don't like how it sounds, then please uh, skip this bit. I tried dead goat cheese in the cheese festival in Bra in Italy, near mm, Turin. Okay. And they actually had, they get a goat, they, a dead goat, they open it up and they put milk in and then they bury it for a while. And that's how you make the cheese. And I still say that's the best thing I've ever seen. I've got to have some of that. I mean, only a cheesemonger would think that's the best thing I've yeah, ever yeah. seen. So I enjoyed it and I was fully ready for it to be really difficult, you know, sort of animal. And, yeah. You know, it was just like feta. I was a bit disappointed. I like, think if you're brave enough. And that's, yeah. It's okay. just feta. I mean, good feta, but um, pretty funky. But not, you know, like you think if I'm brave enough to eat dead goat's cheese, it's, surely it should have a bit more, you know, <sighs> But, I, that, I mean, I hadn't then... That was years before I thought of writing this book. Yeah. So maybe the vestige of that image was in my head when I was thinking about how would you possibly discover cheesemaking. I listened to... Um, oh, no, I think it was about Albania. It was a, the food programme in Albania, and they went to the mountains where some people are making traditional cheese and also it's been regenerated as a yeah. kind of tourist well not so much tourist i hope i mean maybe both but also as a way of rural regeneration ah, as a way oh, of getting okay. a co-op together to get people making but in a traditional way and i was crying <laughs> it's so moving to me listening to dan saladino talking to these cheese makers who've revived ancient things and they're getting some money back into the community oh, and from yeah, their old yeah. tradition i was like this is so moving I often cry about cheese. I cried in um, in Bra when we went to see the Cravero maturing house. So all, as far as I know, all the maturing houses for Parmesan are owned by banks, except right, for okay. one, which is the house of Cravero, the family. There may be more families. This is the one I met. Mm. But it's rare anyway. And his family have been doing this for generations, for hundreds of years. Yeah. So the first son is always called Georgia. And when you go to his office, which is in the stone, almost a castle, there's all the paintings on the walls of the Giorgios going back hundreds of years. It's like a vampire, but the cheese. Um, he's a lovely man. And then you go to the maturing room, which is a cathedral of cheese. I mean, it's the size of a cathedral and it's the shape and it's got tens of thousands of wheels, I don't know, going up into so you can barely see. Can we mere mortals go and visit his? Well, I, I don't. Maybe. He's very nice. I mean, you could ask nicely. You must be able to. It's not the only house that mm. matures. I mean, they would be crazy to not allow tourist yeah. visitors to yeah. see it. When I saw this and looked up and saw 10,000 wheels of palms, I was just crying, you know. 
It was amazing. And also you're thinking, again, they've been doing this for a thousand years, you know. The yeah. guys moving the Parmesans is 35 kilos. When I lift up a Parmesan, it's quite a business. You know, I prepare for it, Yeah. you know. And, and it feels like you're just at the edge of your capacity. And these guys are just flipping them and moving them around. It's not strength, though. It's this amazing technique, technique of moving yeah. stuff that, again, you imagine like their father did it, his father. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. So I love the pastry. And is it from an actual recipe or is it inspired by? Oh, inspired by. Yeah. Inspired yeah. by. Yeah, yeah. It's just delicious. Yeah. I loved the Lord of the Albert. What was it called again? Isle of Avalon. Yeah, yeah. We didn't Little comment. Yeah, yeah, much yes. more funky than the Doros. It is. Much more intense. I love that. Very funky. So we should have the last cheese. I'm going to have to go soon. So this is, I say this about every cheese I like. This is one of my favourite cheeses. I just say it's about every know, cheese. It's like cheese. It's so hard, yeah. You can't. This is French. And we're going kind of back in time again. It's called Contal, specifically Contal au lait de salaire. So it's made from the milk of the salaire cow, who mm. are a breed local to the Auvergne, native to the Auvergne. And um, the milk has a character, has a flavour. Well, this is said. It's also, it's made, traditionally it's made in wooden vats, I think called gel. Wooden vats, which are often quite old, just contain the bacteria yeah, in the wood yeah. like, a, like a starter culture. Yeah. So they don't need to use starter culture, they I just put the milk. Ancient. There was a time, I say recently, that the French government or hygiene you know, department wanted them to stop using these things and use steel because they're worried about the hygiene yeah. implication. And so they did a lovely experiment with i think souring milk in a gel an old gel and souring it in a steel vat and then introducing i think listeria introducing a pathogen to the milk and it went rampant in the steel vat and died in the wooden one because there's a huge population of bacteria all competing i I think and there must be there's an argument that raw milk has enzymes that can protect it to some degree against some bacteria yeah i think i've read a paper on that i would like to read more but just that this natural way might just, you know, there's a reason that they were doing this. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, they've exactly. been allowed to keep the Brilliant. jet. That's, that's a good, this, um, good story. It really is. Mm. They make it, traditionally you made it in the Bjorn, the stone hut, up in the mountains of the Auvergne. And you go up in the spring and you're up there on your own or with, your, with a few mates, you know, looking after cows, making cheese. You come down in the late autumn. Yeah. And that's your life. Um, it's tough. People say, do you want to make cheese professionally? I'm like, no, I want to talk that's, about cheese in a warm place with wine. Exactly. <laughs> it's got a slight bit of heat, the the, mm. the contel. Yeah. A little bit of pepperiness. Interesting. Thinking about the pepperiness of the oil. Very different from all the other cheeses. So changes. different from yeah. the other. Yeah. I would say it's quite a friendly mild batch for this mm. cheese because you can get some contel or the super authentic one is just called Salaire. Right. And I've given that to a room full of people and heard the sound of 20 people going, because <gasps> it's so intense. And sometimes they leave it easy. They're not really eating very much of it. My friends had cheeses where she said, you know, they range from the glorious to absolutely appalling. But again, that's an English palette, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, I, I love this. So my, I have an absolute illustration for the French and British palette for cheese being different and cultural palettes being different. And right. In Borough Market, I would sell kefili and the French, and it's, thank you, oh, this is so exciting. This is the Roman pesto-type yeah. sauce, right? Yeah. <laughs> this has just appeared on my plate. Yeah, so I would sell this kefili. You sell kefili quite young, a couple of months old, fresh, quite firm, quite acidic. And French people go, oh, c'est trop jeune. 
was too young. You know, they think it's a Tom that I should have matured yeah. for longer. We took Hervé Mons, great French affineur, around the cheese rooms of Neil Shard Dairy. And we had a stunt Cheshire. It was a gigantic Cheshire that the Applebee's made for someone's birthday, their son's birthday, for a joke. It was like four feet high or something. It was colossal cheese. And because it was so huge... And kept too much moisture in, and the flavours had gone completely crazy. Mm. They were, you know, they, and so they gave it to us, and it tasted of sulphur, lots of acid. It was mad. So we used to give it to people, potential clients, after they'd had a tour of the cheese rooms and see what they did, which is like the most rubbish marketing strategy of all time. <laughs> but this is what we did. I don't know why we did that, and we gave some to Ove, and he said, oh, I mean, "This is bang, this is perfect. It's absolutely on point. It's great. I'll buy. It. I can sell a lot." He's not an idiot. He so knows, so he knows that his, for his customers' um, palate, that, you know, they're going to like mm. it. Just like I think ages ago we were saying some of the Greek recipes, or so if we drank Greek wine or if yeah. we ate Greek cheese, we might be horrified by it. And they might eat some of the feta and go, that's not feta. Where's the animal? It's, okay. it's just so it's, it is essentially a pesto, isn't it? Isn't mm. it lovely to think that it's, there's this ancient forebear of, of pesto? Yeah. 2,000 years, a bit of white wine, vinegar, a bit of olive oil, yeah. cheese. Lots of garlic yeah. and herbs. Lovely. On that note, thank you very much for Thanks, coming. <laughs> and testing all Thanks this amazing. Thanks for the lovely food. Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. This was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. And I'm Thomas Dinas. Join me again next week for another archaeogastronomical adventure. Remember, if you liked this episode, to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and leave a review and a rating, because this helps spreading the word around the podcast community. Thank you and goodbye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.